Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm Mike Stacks. Though you've played at love and lost and sorrows turned your heart to frost, I will melt your heart again. Today I'm going to be talking to writer Harvey Kubernick. Harvey is the author of 20 books and counting, including Canyon of Dreams, The Magic and the Music of Laurel Canyon, Turn Up the Radio, Rock, Pop and Roll in Los Angeles, 1956 to 1972, and A Perfect Haze, an illustrated history of the Monterey Pop Festival. He's also written definitive biographies of the band Leonard Cohen and many others, often in collaboration with his brother Kenneth. Their most recent book is Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child. Harvey's also written numerous magazine articles and liner notes. His work has appeared regularly in the pages of Ugly Things and on the Ugly Things website. Harvey is one of the world's foremost authorities on the musical history and geography of Los Angeles. He's lived his entire life in the city of Los Angeles, experiencing, absorbing, celebrating, and documenting its music and its culture. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So Harvey, you were born in Los Angeles in 1951. So you came of age in a time and place that was really happening in terms of art, film, television, literature, and music. So how did you first get into music, specifically rock and roll? Was there one record or one moment that hit you like a lightning bolt, or was it more a gradual process? Um, around 1956, when I'm like four years old or something like that, we were living in downtown Los Angeles. Um, besides the radio that I that we had in our family apartment, I would be wandering around. I was in the stroller or first walking. I'm talking like four, five, and six, kind of like that 1955, 56, 57 world. And I, I heard music. I heard sounds. Now, I didn't know what brass were or horns or trumpets, and I didn't know what a harmonica was, the actual name of the instrument. But now that I've done the math and had used to have extensive chats with Jerry Lieber, I realized I was exposed to a lot of R&B and jazz and blues that used to be on L.A. AM radio stations. Um, that coupled with Elvis Presley on the Tommy Dorsey show with my parents. It was a guy wiggling. I didn't really know the guy's name, but there was something kind of, this is interesting because they were big fans of of the Dorsey brothers and Elvis just happened to be on. I remember we kind of did it. I was going to Coliseum Street Elementary School in downtown LA. And I think some of us on the playground started impersonating Elvis Presley as far as doing something besides the hokey pokey, you know, on the cement. Something something grabbed me. But I have to say, I did get to hear on, maybe it was KFOX, KFWB. There was no FM radio. These were AM stations. Um, blues music. And somebody would go, that was Muddy Waters from Chicago. I didn't really know who and what it was. But words like Chicago, like DJs used to give you the city the matrix number of a record. I mean, they really gave you data. Now, I wasn't writing it down, but it did register. And then 
hearing La Bamba by Richie Rallins and Eddie Cochran stuff in the kind of the 58, 59, 60 period. And I have to tell you, before the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 and before John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, the death of Richie Valens on the newspapers in Los Angeles, like in the Los Angeles Times or the Herald Express, that's the first death in the family. This was, this was what, is, what does this mean? And again, at the same time in 1959 in Crenshaw Village, where I was now living with my parents, I saw George Reeves, who was Superman, on the roof of the May Company department store doing in-store appearance. And then he died in 1959. And all of a sudden, people you had seen on TV or heard on the radio, what, Mom, what does this mean? The, the show is off the air. You didn't quite know what was going on, but it made an impact. And then by 1960, we had moved a mile and a half away from Crenshaw Village to Culver City, where I lived from 57 to 63 with my parents. We'll call it a beach town. It had a coastal vibe. We could we could ride our skateboards to the beach and surf. Um, hearing the Beach Boys on the radio in, sometime in 1960 was mind-blowing. And then going, well, we're skipping ahead, but then discovering Dick Dale and going to the rendezvous ballroom, like on field trips with people. Somebody's mother had a car or something. So the Beach Boys, I didn't need to see the Beatles on Ed Sullivan to get into rock and roll. I am rock and roll. Right. It was, it was all around you, I guess, where you were located. And, and that spoke to that beach culture that you mentioned uh, when you heard the Beach Boys and when you saw Dick Dale playing, I imagine. It, it, and remember, I didn't want to be a guitar player. I, that, wasn't, that wasn't me. I mean, I realized that I was placed here to be in downtown Los Angeles. Even our dental clinic was on Vermont and Jefferson. And I'm not painting some picture that I was deep in the hood or something. But I am in downtown Los Angeles, South Los Angeles, South Central LA for food and for dental work, what, 64 to 67, before and after the Watts riots of August 65. Um, and then living in Crenshaw Village, I mean, when I run into Ice Cube on a very rare occasion, it's always like, there's the original OG, meaning me. I've done three interviews with him. <laughs> I, I was living in these, in these regions before these people were born. But we have a commonality because they, well, partially due to the internet, they know that I have actively supported Negro culture, as it used to be called in the 50s and 60s, black culture, and now whatever term, Afro-American music pop culture. They know that I, I have met Lou Rawls or interviewed Lou Rawls and that I interviewed Ronnie Isley for Melody Maker in 1974. They, they sample the music. They do their own research. And I'm usually the only guy that interviewed David Ruffin in 1976 for Melody Maker. I just didn't jump on this inclusion bandwagon. I've been, I was born this way. But now it, now that I'm looking back a bit, I was placed in downtown L.A. and then over to Crenshaw Village. But being in the sunshine of the West Coast surf music, which goes back to 57, 58, the early surf films and and Bud Brown's pictures and all that. It didn't start 
with Janet Dean and the Beach Boys. It had been percolating with Dick Dale just before that. And then, um, so that, I hope that answers the question, but it was just all around me. Plus, I have parents. My dad made 92. My mother just turned 98. They didn't hate rock and roll. My mother saw Judy Garland in 1939 in Chicago. My dad was a huge Julie London fan. They dug Sinatra. You know, and even 1961, 62, 63, on our family trips, I'm not a toddler, but I'm not a teenager yet. We'd go to Las Vegas um, so they could see the Rat Pack or Sinatra at the Dunes or the Golden Nugget. And um, we'd often be in our rooms watching the Mickey Mouse Club or something. But still, you'd, you'd be held hand walking through a casino, and my mom would say, hey, there's Sammy at the craps table. Now, you didn't get an autograph or go up to him. Everything was so accessible. And so I was really into all these people. But I also, um, I also lived with my radio. Right. Let's talk about your mother, Hilda. She worked in the entertainment industry, so you're exposed to some of the behind-the-scenes stuff pretty early yes. on. My, my fabulous mother, who I talk to daily, is a fucking force of nature, um, born in Chicago. But my parents came out to the West Coast in 1947. Um, from 1962 to about 1972... My mother worked for Columbia Pictures as a secretary and, and was in the stenography pool and um, based largely at Gower Gulch near um, Sunset and Vine. I, you know, I, I spent some time at the studio during that period. I'd say I was at the studio maybe once a month. I wasn't there weekly or daily. I didn't have showbiz aspirations. I wasn't some person that would bring a demo tape to me to producer or headshots. I, I, I wasn't interested in getting a SAG card. Um, I respected the fact my mother had a job and my dad was a stockbroker. They worked very hard and, um, and we all went to public schools. But I would say, you know, I, uh, the, the main thing about hanging out there and again, I'm uh, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 primarily, or 17 and 18. Um, you could, I could go see my mother to go get a milkshake, you know, at the commissary at Columbia Pictures because it's two and a half blocks down the street from Wallach's Music City. And I, either I would get a ride home back to our home or take the bus for a quarter but I spent some time there, but you'd actually get to see like Cary Grant walk by and he'd go, hello, gent. And you'd get to see um, people like uh, Stanley Kramer when he was doing Ship of Fools. Um, right. No autographs or anything. That wasn't my gig. I mean, I saw Sally Fields when she did Gidget. Uh, I remember her walking by and Sajid Khan with Jay North did, I think, a TV show called Maya. Um, you'd see Fernando Lamas, you'd see people, but you know, my thing was I probably went to four, five, six, seven episodes of the monkeys. You, you couldn't really mingle, but they were shooting. And, you know, what are the, and, and I, you know, this stuff made an impression on me because I realized show business was hard work. 
Um, you did have to get up at four o'clock in the morning sometimes to do stuff. Um, my mother did type some of the scripts used on the monkeys. She did dictation for Lillian Hellman, I remember. I met Dick York. I met Dick Sargent. You'd meet people that were contract players or worked at the studio. Um, right. The monkeys thing was in the Ray Burt Productions office. That's Burt Schneider and Bob Rafelson. Um, I remember when the show got cast. I remember my brother and I and our family went to the of preview screenings at the preview house on Sunset, which where the show wasn't super, super well received. And they did some modifications and recut some stuff. And then it got much better ratings. Right. We went to the first two press conferences of the monkeys. Um, I met Mickey Dolenz. He was the one most accessible too, because I knew who he was from circus boy. And on occasion, 66, 67, maybe more towards 67, I remember a couple times where my mother said something like, well, you're going over to Wallach's Music City, aren't you? There's a studio called RCA down the street from it. Can you bring this sheet music over? And I'd go there and I'd say, I have a delivery from Raybird Productions. Now, I didn't know, you know, to hang out and try to go to other rock and roll sessions. Now that I'm older, I realize the Rolling Stones or the Electric Prunes or maybe even the Grateful <laughs> yeah. Dead Probably the Jefferson Airplane were in one of the other studios, but I was on a skateboard and I also had an after school job. So I really couldn't hang out a lot, but it was a, it was a good hang to see um, Dennis Hopper in the commissary. He was always cool. We talk about a movie he did called Night Tide. Jack Nicholson um, was always a blast to hang out with. He, we, he'd talk about, being a messenger for Terry Tunes when he first came to town and being from New Jersey. And this is a world before Easy Rider. And um, it was sort of like, there's Hilda's kid, but you know, it was a, it, it, I liked the monkeys a lot. I was an advocate of the monkeys. And I, I will say that um, when the show was first being put together on our kitchen table on Fifth Street, my brother Kenneth, myself, and my mother put together the first monkeys kits, the first press kits that Howard Brandy, he was the unit publicist and he had worked on Hard Day's Night. Um, he put together and we assembled everything like with staplers and everything to be given out at the first press conferences or some of the early screenings or something. And this is probably all pretty interesting information because I'm not a guy that had liner notes on any of the monkeys reissues or box sets i made a couple of attempts over the decades and politely shunned <laughs> so now when i talk about it or write about it, it it gets more fan mail and emails than anything i'd ever written on keith richard or robbie robertson i mean i'm delighted to talk about the monkeys so uh, tell me about some of the other you know more memorable rock and roll gigs you went to um Back then in the 60s, you mentioned going to the Rendezvous Ballroom to see Dick Dale. Um, what about later than that in the in the mid-60s when you're uh, more in your teen years? Right. Well, there's – I would never say I had a regional advantage over so many people in the Midwest. But I am living, you know, uh, in, in Los Angeles, which is in an area which is now called West Hollywood, in 1964 to 1972 – so the Sunset Strip and Los Angeles and the beach community 
and even schlepping to San Diego and Santa Barbara weren't too difficult to do once we either had cars or hitchhiked or had, in my case, I had an older cousin, Sheila. So in 64, I remember in February 64, I went to see the Beatles at the uh, Wilshire Theater on that closed circuit TV broadcast from um, Washington, D.C. To this day, I still think they were in the room. I was in the room with the Beatles. That was an amazing concert, yeah. It just was so monumental. But to be there, and I was primed for it because I did see the Beatles in the Cavern Club clip on the Jack Parr show in like December of 63. That made an impression. And I went to school the next day, and all the Beach Boy people really were giving me some stick that I was leaving the Jan and Dean and the Beach Boy fan club because I caught the flash of this group doing some other guy, a Lieber and Stoller tune, on Jack Parr. And so when, and, and my family and I religiously watched Ed Sullivan all through the 50s and all through, up until the show went off the air in 1971. And the Beatles and Ed Sullivan was more of a, it, it was mind-blowing, but it was, reconfirming things to me that there was some sort of impulse or some kind of path or something new out there. And I would be remiss to say we were all still in the bummer tent off the November 22nd John F. Kennedy murder. That was a real bummer. And it just hung through the um, the holiday season of 63. So it was such an uplifting thing. So to see the Beatles and that closed circuit TV thing. Now, I didn't know that Leslie Gore and the Beach Boys you know, were segments filmed in Burbank, California, and inserted for broadcast. I thought that was cool to see the Beach Boys. But then again, I saw the Beach Boys in 1962 in Culver City at a record store. They used to do record hops, and they did a three-song set in Culver City. I thought they were playing live. I didn't know they were lip-syncing and holding instruments and wearing Pendleton's. (laughs) But that was really cool. That was... Dirt of the Beach Boys in front of us. And in 1965 at Fisher's Hamburgers on 3rd in Fairfax, I ran into Brian Wilson and his then wife, Marilyn, who were very accessible. I mean, it was Brian in full throttle peacoat and the whole deal. But Marilyn was um, really nice and friendly and invited me to sit down. I didn't ask for autographs. I wasn't just one. I just didn't do that. But it turned out that you know, I'm going to be going to Fairfax High School next year. And then Marilyn said, well, I graduated there with my group. And, um, you know, and so I sort of got to be friendly with them. But I saw a lot of shows uh, in that 64 to 72 period. Maybe there were 13 concerts every month or so in 68. I went to a half a dozen of them because I was the only person at Fairfax High School who did not have a phony ID. So at 17, I looked 13. So I couldn't get into clubs that were 18 or 21. The whiskey started a policy in 1968 that you could be 18 or be close to 18. You could go in, you could sit upstairs, you had to wear a wristband, you couldn't go on the dance floor, they'd lose their dance permit, and you couldn't drink alcohol. But Mario and Elmer, because I had a bit of a paper route down the street, starting in 64, I would walk by the whiskey five times a week. I was happy just to see the names on the marquee or sometimes see bands load in with long hair and funny clothes. And 
I got to finally go in to see John Mayall and the Blues Breakers and early Fleetwood Mac and the Keith Hartley Band and um, a lot of great whiskey stuff starting in 68. But I was going to R&B clubs in 65 and 66 and 67 um, with friends of mine that lived in downtown LA or I'd stay the night. And, you know, I think I saw Parliament Funkadelic in 73 at Mavericks Flat. Um but I, but I just I just and I saw an incredible show that I saw the 1966 went with my brother KBLA concert at Santa Monica Civic Auditorium with the Buffalo Springfield where Steve Stills debuted for what it's worth Sonny and Cher were there lip syncing right. humble humble Harv and Dave Diamond were the DJs the music music machine played the Turtles played and then in 67 my brother and I for 99 cents went to the KHJ um, concert, I think it was for the Braille Institute, a charity concert, and that was the that was the Supremes with a full orchestra, the Seeds, Buffalo Springfield, Johnny Rivers, and the Fifth Dimension. Uh, and around the same time, my friend David Wolf and I, who I met in Culver City in 1962, who was really into Jan and Dean, uh, the Safaris, and the Beach Boys. We went to the famous White Front concert, which is your dream gig at the Hollywood Bowl. You could go to a White Front department store. If you bought an album on reprise, you got free tickets to the concert at the Bowl. And the show was The Sop with Camel, The Everly Brothers, Eric Bird and the New Animals, The Association, headlined by The Who. We had second row box. And it was, it, it drizzled. We, it, we walked home in the rain. But these were the kind of events that um, we would go to see. And those were some of the, the mind blow, you know, concerts that, that probably define the path that I'm on right now. Sure. I mean, they must have been life-changing to see some of those, some of those shows. I mean, just these bands at their peak. And because it wasn't, it was maybe the music business then, but it wasn't the music industry the proletariat or the working class or the kid like myself could sort of still get pretty good seats then before scalpers and all that sort of stuff showed up and kind of changed the game. So there was an immediate accessibility. Um, parking was usually a dollar for free. So the economics didn't handcuff you if you were a guy like me going to junior high, going to high school with an afternoon job making $1.35 an hour or something. I did see the Kinks in 70 in the pit at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, uh, doing a lot of things from Arthur and Village Green. That was from another planet. Uh, Van Morrison debuting Moon Dance at the Santa Monica Civic. I might have seen Van Morrison at the Whiskey, and he was just sitting on a stool with a flute player, you know, when he had, when he was on Bang Records, I have a faint memory of that. I did go with my parents to see Johnny Rivers at the Whiskey Go-Go as early as 65 or 66. I got to go in with them. I, somebody knew somebody and I got to walk in and Elmer and Mario, who I think at a lot of my books were always very nice to me. Because I would, I was never showing up with a lot of friends or had some girlfriend that I always had to have a plus one. I was like a solo mobile unit by myself, 
And it was easier to get in (laughs) saying, well, can I take her with me? Or this guy's father is in the business. So I didn't do that kind of stuff. I, I just was grooving on the vibe. But these things were beyond life. They were life altering. And I wasn't in, I didn't want to really be a musician. I was in a band briefly for six weeks in 1965, a surf group called the Riptides. I played drums because I was in um, beginning orchestra and percussion at John Burroughs Junior High. And that was, I had the same teachers and it was the same room where Russ Teitelman and Phil Spector and Billy Preston, I believe, um, all were in that music class, you know, 10 or 12 years before me. But I remember Mrs. Malloy saying, young man, Andre Previn sat in the seat you were in, but he chose piano <laughs> instead of drums. So I, but I, I fell into drummers. I would go to the professional drum shop in Drum City. I, I had a kit, but, um, you know, um, I, lead guitarists and I didn't get along in bands. They were pretty egotistical people and braggers. And um, I, I also realized <laughs> I wasn't, going to go to the Berkeley College of Music or the, some conservatory where you had to read music and be a studio musician. Because I had met studio musicians like Larry Taylor of Can't Heat, who was in Can't Heat, but also played on the first Monkees album. I had met musicians very early, like on, on the lot with the Monkees or at a, a screening of an episode, you know, uh, Big Wayne Irwin, those kind of guys, they'd all be there. And it showed me that life as a musician might be very hard as far as employment. I was made aware of the machinations, the politics, the cronyism, the nepotism, and the devious nature of most people in show business, that I was just a little Piscean child of Hollywood. I was never vicious enough to have that gene as well as that you had to have with the talent. I'm not complaining. Things have worked out quite fine. But... um, so those are some of the shows. Plus the other, and I know this is probably a question you're going to ask, <laughs> the saving grace of gr- growing up in the West Hollywood area is that producers of TV shows were always, I'll use this term, recruiting us to dance on the shows or come see all the TV shows being taped. So I said to myself, well, I can't see, the- oh, I saw the miracles at the Whiskey Go-Go in 66 that was from another fucking planet. Every 10 years when I see Smokey Robinson, I fucking hug the guy. He'll go, hey, man, hey, man. And I'll just hug him and I'll go, whiskey a go-go, tears of a clown. Thank you, England, for breaking that record. So I always throw some fucking knuckleball shit at him. And he'll like it because it's it's pretty deep-rooted stuff from way back. Um, Motown, the, the KGFJ, K-Day, the, the, the great thing was we couldn't see a lot of these R&B acts on stacks in Motown in the clubs, again, 21 and over. But it became apparent to me and my friend Bob Kushner. I still talk to three or four people from elementary school and junior high and high school. We all would go together. I mean, occasionally a girl would look at us and say, can I come along? That was like a big uh, moment in history. And I have to say that we figured out we can't see the four tops at the whiskey, but they're doing a TV show called Shindig 
on Sunset Boulevard. So if the booby prize is seeing these acts, I didn't know the mathematics of the time where they play, they'd come to town. I thought people came to town, did a concert and walked and got on a plane or a train. They'd stay for two or three days and do TV shows and the occasional radio interview. So I had access. So I went to a lot of TV show tapings from 65 to 70. And that even continued for me. I went to just about every midnight special taping in the 70s. But the um, going to Shindig tapings, going to 9th Street West, going to Groovy, uh, I went to a lot of the happening 68 TV shows. Um, and in my books, I talk about meeting Dick Clark and interviewing him. And I also danced for a short season. I have two witnesses, so shut the fuck up, you people, writing me letters saying you never danced on American Bandstand. I've got the emails of two <laughs> witnesses, okay? I was there um, I, and, and I was there for the Mamas and Papas and Bob Lind on American Bandstand. That's really, and it was still black and white. It hadn't become color yet. Um, right. You actually got to slow dance with like a girl from junior high and get her phone number. And that was kind of cool. <laughs> I, I was wondering how you were going to dance to uh, Elusive Butterfly. Well, that was, that was the spotlight dance and it was slow stuff. You might wake up some morning to the sun. But the thing is, you'd actually see like Mama Cass driving on Sunset, or you'd see her at Harry's Open Pit Barbecue, or the Ranch Market on Vine. These people were all accessible to us. That's not to say I wasn't starstruck if I saw Lucille Ball or somebody like that. Oh my God, there's Lucy. But all these rock and roll people, these Laurel Canyon people, we're all kind of neighbors. And so I took my driver's test at Fairfax High School in Laurel Canyon because of the curves and the, the parallel parking and all the navigation things they taught us. It will not harm you. It's only me pursuing And so that, that, that American Bandstand thing was really good hanging out there. And... Um, and I got to dance on Shebang with Casey Kasem. I saw the Bo Brubbles. I remember them being on. Again, I thought their people were playing music in the background. Now that I'm older and I see the clips, the fucking wires from the guitars weren't even plugged into the mic to the amplifiers. <laughs> um, although I will tell you, and Casey and I did it, talked, and Dick Clark and I talked at length. Casey and Shebang, the vocalist, often did a live vocal like uh, the Seeds or the Doors when they are on Shebang, the vocalist did a live vocal that was mixed with the pre-recorded track. Right. So the TV shows were a gas to go to. It's um, A lot of that stuff shows up in one book I wrote, um, Hollywood Shack, Job Rock Music, you know, on screen in 2006. And then my most recent book, um, Docs That Rock, Music That Matters, um, that I actually became a student and a scholar and an expert on the music world uh, as far as the TV shows and all that because I had proximity over all the Wikipedia fucking children writing about this stuff <laughs> who weren't born when the shows first aired. I'm not in competition with you kids. Respect your elders. <laughs> so... As you said, you realized at some point you weren't going to be a musician. So 
you, you did was taking up writing and documenting the scene what you did instead to become sort of a part of it um you know how did that come about how did what was the first writing stuff that you did about music how did you get into that i would say through the late 60s and first part of the 70s in my academic life of fairfax high west la college and going to san diego state i was constantly discouraged about having any communication skills or even writing. I was rejected from trying to write for the school newspaper in high school, and, and I didn't even show up for the photos, my high school graduation photo session. And in retaliation, they spelled my name Jarvie Kubernick in the yearbook. I, I was always never allowed on campus, as, as we used to laugh about. <laughs> now I am the campus. Isn't that interesting? But... Um, I will say when I went to West LA Junior College in 1969 at 18, well, I should back it up in that the weekend after I graduated high school, I went to the Newport 69 Pop Festival. My mother and I had a rule. You can do whatever you want after you turn 18. You can go to these concerts. You can go to some girl's house for the weekend. This is a world without cell phones and stuff. You can do whatever you want. You're on my watch till you're 18. It was pretty good parenting. And, um, you know, uh, I don't want you smoking cigarettes. Um, don't get caught up in alcohol. I know you might try marijuana. Uh, please. Um, friends of ours have had some trouble in that department. Um, you may want to go to college one day. Uh, it wasn't like I was getting some directive of being some goody-goody. But... Um, Going to see that pop festival uh, with Spirit and Hendrix and Ike and Tina Turner and the Don Ellis Orchestra and the Edwin Hawkins Singers was, you know, there was a moment, and I've, I've said this before, during Red House by Jimi Hendrix. It wasn't a very good show by Jimi. It was about 37 minutes. It wasn't, he wasn't on that night. But Red House was 11 minutes of just the world stood still. And I said, wow, I'm starting college next week. I'm starting a job at the school library. When they were building the school, I went up there and said, I'm going to be going to school here and I need a job. And I filled out an application to work in the library 15 hours a week. And they were still building the, the school and I got a job. And so I realized I was kind of stone free for about one more week until I might become sort of an adult. But going to West LA College, again, no journalism class. I never knew there were such majors as radio and television broadcasting. Even at San Diego State, I got rejected from the Daily Aztec newspaper um, and, and never even knew they had a TV or radio communications degree. But at West LA College, I got to stock the library with books like On the Road. I got to make the first subscriptions to Downbeat and Jet and Ebony. I tried to get Melody Maker in that library. I became aware of writers and journalists and music journalists. And I said, this might be a way to get close to the music. I, I don't know if I could be a disc jockey because disc jockeys never had stability in the market. That was told to me by somebody. You may get a gig for a year and then it ends. And I... You know, I said, okay, 
And so I um, thought maybe I, I could do the writing, even though 190 people had said, don't bother writing. If, you and, want to, um, if you're looking for stability, maybe writing's not, not the way to go. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> but, but anyways, a friend of mine who I'm still friends with, Justin Pierce, was the music editor of a, a newspaper called The Hollywood Press, sort of like our free press, but a little more racier. This is in 1972. And I did a couple of record reviews for him, like of the Kinks. And I never wanted to be a record reviewer. That just I wanted to talk to the people and interview them and find out how music was made. And I also knew things like the studio and the engineer were just as important as the lead singer of the band, which the media is often fascinated with. Right. And um, started writing for the Hollywood Press, pitched something to John Carpenter at the Free Press in 1974. It was a Brian Auger interview, who I saw at the Whiskey A Go-Go, who I still know who's in four of my books. <laughs> and um, I, I started writing for the Free Press. And then in 1975, I went to England, pre-punk world, had lunch with Ray Coleman, the um, editor of Melody Maker at the time, and said, you know, I'm going to a lot of shows, a lot of concerts. He'd always had West Coast correspondence. Michael Oakes, Jacoba Atlas, Leonard Feather had the jazz world thoroughly covered out here. But he said, um, well, why don't you do some writing for us? And then I lobbied for a column. So from 1975 to 1980, I wrote the weekly Los Angeles column for Melody Maker. And I will admit it had a very hardcore West Coast slant. But history proves that I, how do I say this? I gave a lot of people breaks who deserved it. I helped get some bands signed to labels and didn't have any economic compensation for it, not that I asked. And I also did some pretty interesting coverage that people occasionally come up to me at a book signing and go, I still have that article you wrote, blah, blah, blah. But I remember things like covering Larry Williams' funeral where Little Richard gave the eulogy. I know that I was a little different than anybody writing for People magazine or the Los Angeles Times. And then in 1974, Robert Hilburn, who was the music editor at the LA Times, read some of my work and said, you sure like the Beach Boys, don't you? And he laughed about it because we're in the middle of glam and glitter at that time. And the Beach Boys were considered has-beens and silly people. And I said, I was just at Capitol Records. I'm getting a copy of this Endless Summer double album. There's like a double greatest hits. And there's some really cool stuff on this thing. And I reviewed it for the LA Times, Sunday Calendar, when there was a million people a week reading that paper. Yeah. And um, and I was always a Beach Boy fan. David Wolf and I went to one of the greatest Beach Boy concerts of all time, December 71, where the group Flame opened for the Beach Boys at the Santa Monica Civic. And it's before the Beach Boys became sort of an oldies act. They were still doing things from Sunflower and Surf's Up. We went to the 1972 Beach Boy show at the Long Beach Arena. And remember, I'm paying for a lot of this stuff. I'm not getting comped out and on record company lists yet. This is out of my own pocket. I'm not complaining about it. I'm there as a fan, hoping to go, hoping to maybe, you know, do more writing. Uh, Brian Wilson is sitting near us in the audience and he's called up on stage and he sings Day in the Life of a Tree with the group at the Long Beach Arena. 
that was kind of cool. Wow. Yeah. And um, I also saw five Rolling Stones 1972 Exile Main Street concerts, including the Hollywood Palladium in Southern California. And I don't think I've ever recovered from that, but that's like a booster shot because the first vaccine I got with the Stones were two shows live in 1969 in November at the Forum, where it's the Stones with the opening act, Terry Reed, B.B. King, and the Ike and Tina Turner Review. And it was... B.B. King and Ike and Tina were foreplay for the sex of the Stones that night. We'll be right back. Let's talk about your latest book, right? Which is Jimi Hendrix, Voodoo Child. What made you decide that the world needed another Hendrix book? And how did you go about finding a fresh approach to telling that story? It was never part of the game plan to do a Jimi Hendrix book. But since 2009, I developed a very strong relationship with the publisher, Sterling, a part of Barnes and Noble out of New York. And I, I did a book called Canyon of Dreams, The Magic and the Music of Laurel Canyon in 2009. And then um, my brother and I passed on doing a book on the Eagles. If it was the Buffalo Springfield, we might have considered it. Um, I would hope so. Yeah. Um, and then we, my brother and I did a book in 2014 in conjunction with Lou Adler kind of an official illustrated history of the Monterey International Pop Festival. That was for Santa Monica Press. But I knew the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love was going to be happening in 2017. And I said, there needs to be a book on the Summer of Love. I've been working with an editor there, Barbara Berger, who had a grasp and an understanding of the power of the music of the 60s. And I said, I, I, I want to do a book on the Summer of Love I've got it covered, but I'm not going to give you sex and drugs and orgies. I'm just letting you know up front. Um, I had interviewed Allen Ginsberg and knew Michael McClure and knew the, knew the importance of the Beat Generation. In 1990, I was the project coordinator of the Jack Kerouac Collection. Um, I knew that beatniks and rock and roll, and I had already interviewed the Jefferson Airplane. I had a lot of archive information on people that were there in the summer of love. And I knew how important Hollywood was in the summer of love or the things that emerged from the summer of love. And it wasn't going to be the same stuff we've read constantly of there. Sure. There'd be love ins and stuff like that, but I would really do something different because the summer of love that I experienced was Motown and stacks and VJ records coupled with the strawberry alarm clock and the turtles and the monkeys and the birds. I said, I have all this interviews already with Chris Hillman and everybody. There's a book to be done here. And I said, I have a lot of archive items. And Henry Diltz, who I met in 1967 when he was the set photographer of the monkeys in the second season, you know, his archivist librarian, Gary Strobel is a dear friend of mine. Right. 
we were working on a book with my brother and Henry on the monkeys. We can get to that. It could be coming out end of this year or next year. Um, I'll do a summer love book, but um, I have access to Jack Holtzman and people that have worked with Jimi Hendrix. That came out, and it, I'm very proud of that book um, because I really think we showed a really multiracial aspect of the summer of love. And then Barbara said, what's your next idea? And I said, well, my brother and I want to do a book on the band. Um, we saw them with Dylan in 74. I had interviewed Robbie Robertson in 1976 for Crawdaddy. <laughs> How about that, kids? Crawdaddy, cover story. Thank you, Paul Williams. He, Paul Williams wrote the back cover blurb with Brian Wilson on my first book, This is Rebel Music. I have respect for those kind of people. And the band book, I'm really happy with. And of course, none of these books are reviewed in Los Angeles. So, um, which means they're really good. And then at the band book, Barbara said, what do you have planned? And I said, well, I do think there's a book to be done on Jimi Hendrix. Sadly, it's the 50th anniversary of his physical passing. I don't want that really to be the, the hanger that this thing comes out on. But there's going to be a lot of action on Jimi Hendrix around the 50th of his passing. But also, there's a constant flow of Hendrix reissues and new product coming out. I've interviewed Eddie Kramer, the engineer, a few times. I've done two different interviews with Janie Hendrix, largely for Record Collector News Magazine and Music Connection. I can put together a Hendrix book like never before. And my brother coming in on this thing who's the musician in the family and the prog and jazz Kupernick, as we call him. <laughs> um, we really can bring something new to the table. And I remember writing the proposal and my brother would say, well, I want you to add Brian Auger and the guys from, you know, Vandergraaff Generator. And I also have, I'm also friends with the widow of Elton Dean and of the soft machine we need to put these people in the book. And I said, not a problem. Do you think somebody will let these people in? Because it's always celeb-driven or groupie inclusion, and we weren't going to do that. And Barbara said, okay, let's go do this Hendrix book. And that's how that happened. But all along, you know, all along I had met dozens of people at concerts or friends of mine I would always say to a musician like Robbie Krieger or John Densmore, I would say in the middle of an interview, did you ever meet or see Jimi Hendrix? Then they tell me a story. And I'd have that filed. So when the time was ready, I already had not a lot of the book written, and I was not, how's this term? I was not going to be co-reliant exclusively on my archive. That was a foundation but there were still 20, 30, 40, 50 interviews to do, as well as acquiring all the visuals and the photos. And um, I don't know, the proof's in the pudding. I think we delivered a book way different than any other Hendrix book put together, as far as information, data, insights, the multi-voice weaving that I like to do, right. and the pictures. And my brother's contributions on that book, um, he's not writing Shotgun with me. It's on this one, and especially the band book as well. I've done 20 books. I've done five with him. When he is brought in, he is co-billed as an equal. 
I will say I put together a general outline. We have a lot of dialogues. We're close. Um, and then I'll go, okay, why don't you write about Linda Keith in a couple of paragraphs? I'll find a photo of her. I, I would. It's sort of like I'm the quarterback and he would be like the, the halfback or the end on the pitch. And I would give him the assignment sometimes. But we have a telepathic relationship where I would say, listen, I know you're going over to Brian Augers to hang out. Um, ask him about the couple times he met Jimmy or played with him once with Johnny Holiday. I, I seem to remember something. Again, I wasn't going to live on Wikipedia. And my brother would come back. Brian has got incredible photos of, you know, of, 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 of his archive. And so I turned my brother loose to um, really bring in the musicians that we never hear about before or their widows or people from their estate who granted us permissions and usage of items. And, um, I, you know, this, this book is not a seasonal book. I mean, this book is bringing me into arenas I don't even think about because, again, I think we're, we, we have, just like what you do at Ugly Things, we bring people to the essence, to the core journey. We're not restricted by word count or banner headlines or caring about what a record label thinks for advertising or flavor of the month. You write about stuff that's 40, 50, and 60 years old, and so do I. That's not to say I haven't done interviews with Ice Cube and Ice-T. I, I like a new guy named Orville Peck who's on Sub Pop. Would I like to do more current stuff? Yes, those assignments aren't coming in. They are coming in in the world of music documentaries that I'm active in. But I have no problem when, somebody, when there's a Doors 50th anniversary and I get to talk to the engineer, Bruce Botnick, again, or I get to email Robbie Krieger for an interview. So all these things, you know, are, I'm very happy the way things are working out. You know, occasionally somebody will come up to me in a market or a bookstore or record shop and say, are you Harvey Kubernick? Yes. Um, I don't have to be defensive because immediately it'll be, it goes beyond an autograph. Oh my God, I've got your book on our car or something like that. But they'll say, Oh, my, we got, my boyfriend gave me that band book you did. How do you pronounce your last name? And you start the pen, you feel the penetration is happening and that you're getting really great relationships here. I mean, that was very evident to me in 2017 when I spoke at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio. I actually got to do a great Q&A session and talk about Don Webster's TV show Upbeat that was um, done in Cleveland for a decade, which is, in my mind, right up there with American Bandstand and Shindig and Shebang. And to actually acknowledge Don Webster or to talk about Bobby Womack, who was from the area. Um, you meet people that went to school with Bobby Womack or people that played golf with Don Webster and they appreciated you writing a mini chapter on Don Webster in one of your books because nobody else has ever done it. Those are the right. things that get me off. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It, it, and as a writer, sometimes you don't get to know that you're engaging your audience. You know the books sell, you know the magazines sell, but it's, it's when you get that engagement, that feedback. Um, it's not like when you're a musician, you get that feedback right away from the stage. But yeah, as a, as a writer... 
it's a little more elusive. So it's very special when you do get it. Let me ask you. Let me ask you one question because I know you. This was something you wanted to ask me about. You noticed the bioregional and the West Coast flavor in the Los Angeles parade that I have in a lot of the books. Oh, absolutely. Albeit sometimes it's a tad over the top at times, but I know that it resonates with people like you and the people that would subscribe to your magazine. And I don't want to say I stick out like a green thumb, but you do know that I'm. we're all putting light to a, Los An- a world of Los Angeles that has been highly underserved as far as media coverage and books. And so when I interview somebody like Jack Holtzman, he and I get to tell him, you know, clear light's going to be in the next issue of Ugly Things, that means something to him. Um, and those are the things that I think are really important. But I, I just kind of feel as a native of Los Angeles and somebody born kind of in East Hollywood, well, Sunset and Alvarado overlooking the Hollywood 101 freeway, I have a territorial obligation to get the truth out since it's there's more to this world uh, than hip-hop, rap, and punk rock. Yep. That certainly deserves to be covered. Don't get me wrong. But as Kirk Silsby once said, the problem with the Los Angeles music journalist, they have New York penis envy. <laughs> and, um, and we know how important Johnny Otis was or is. And we added James... And, um, you know, I kind of feel if I can remind people about that, that's cool. I mean, I, I'm constantly reminded, whether it be on some of the documentaries I'm either involved with or been interviewed for. Um, I think what's happening, partly due to Dave Grohl doing a Sound City documentary or the Great Muscle Shoals documentary and that terrific Wrecking Crew documentary and including 20 Feet from Stardom that Morgan Neville did or... The Troubadours documentary that I was the consulting producer on for Morgan before that, um, the studios and the world of Los Angeles heritage, the legacy, is now going under the microscope, and I'm at the epicenter of it. Right. Yeah, you're you're the acknowledged expert. This is you know you're the regional expert. So uh, and you've been advocating this world for you know many many decades at this point. So yeah, as it should be. Yeah, so I feel that's one of the reward cards that's showing up. But I I mean, was I lucky to have known Phil Spector in the 70s and 80s and 90s and interview him two or three times in 2000 for Goldmine and in 1977 for Melody Maker? Yes. And, you know, uh, I treasure those moments at his house or being at Gold Star or being around the Ramon sessions and the Dion sessions and playing on a Paley Brothers record. And, you know, those are very important moments to me because I was there then and I'm thankfully still here and now. And a lot of these, this music still sounds very topical to me. Um, and I think people need to see, I think people need to know about people like H.B. Barnum or or arranger, other arrangers like Jack Nietzsche or Don Randy. Right. I think the arrangers are very important. I make it a point to talk to arrangers whenever I can. And the word arranger is not sexy to the media. And, you know, for the first 20 years, I would never call this my writing career. It was never a career. It was survival. Well, it was survive and thrive, maybe. Um, 
I would turn I would have a lot of LA content or LA lore and lore and information in my articles. And 95% of the time they were always chopped out by the editor who was either in New York or had moved from New York, and there was a sense of shame of billboarding and parading all this LA history because they knew nothing about the town and what the town has brought to the game. Now New York, I think, has been so chronicled constantly that everybody's running here to now do L.A. singer-songwriter docs and and all these things. And, you know, you have, you're going to have more Beach Boy books. Inevitably, with Beach Boy books, they're all going to have my name in it. Either it's going to be either I'm quoted in it or it's materials from my archive that's in the bibliography. So there seems to be a second and third life that's starting to happen. And I'm just, a, I'm the... I am the messenger, but also I think there's a certain um, civic obligation and a duty that I have to remind people about Jack Nietzsche or Kim Fowley or Phil Spector or Sonny Bono especially or Eddie Cochran. Um, they're not here in the physical with us, and um, but there are a lot of people like Jim Keltner I'll constantly interview or, or John Densmore. A lot of the drummers I will always find a way to give them a role or a part in the um, the writing I do, and they appreciate it, and and I think it pays dividends for everybody. Well, and they have great stories to tell. I mean, you uh, connected me with Jim Keltner for the Gabor Zabo book I'm working on, and he was just amazing, just a wonderful interview subject. So yeah, you're 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 a resource for this for this information, you know that, and there's new generations coming up that want to know these things, so. That's why that's why you do what you do. That's what I do what I do. I, somebody, here's the question I'm asked the most. Um, what do you, how do you write? How do you write? I do play the music. If I'm writing about Exxon Main Street, I will play that album as I'm creating the piece. But I will also either play an episode of The Fugitive, The Twilight Zone, Route 66, Y&I, um, Naked City. Donnie Benton, defined by himself as one who will not be denied, by fate or by man. Naked City is presented by Kentucky Kings, only a cigarette with a filter made of tobacco, and all tobacco... Just black and white episodic television, just because of the, the tension of those shows... And the soundtracks and some of those really good music cues. And sometimes I feel I'm taking some of the drama of those TV shows and I'm translating a little bit of it into the writing. Instead of like doing some third man theme where somebody shows up to change the whole narrative. I know when I find a new piece of information that nobody has ever found or written about it shocks some people because you and I know, I don't want to use the word demographic, but let's just say the devoted readers of Ugly Thing or rock journalists in general. We think we know everything and we've read everything on Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, The Beatles. We think it's already been done. So when you show up with 50 new pieces and nuggets of data, it's sort of overwhelming because often when we read a book, we learn three or four cool things that we never knew of people we're familiar with. 
I'm bringing 20, 30, and 40 pieces of information and new a new dynamic that if you surrender and you join me, it's what Horace Tapscott, the band leader, used to say, we are in collaboration, not in competition. There you go. And I think that's true of all of us. Um, but that in this doggy dog world and in any kind of entertainment business, and that includes music journalism or rock writing, there isn't a whole lot of camaraderie. Um, I understand. So I just kind of do my own thing. If, you know, as my brother told me about Cecil Taylor, when people were kind of walking out of one of his shows one time, Cecil said something like, I play for the people who stay, not for the ones that leave. There you go. That's all you can do. Yes. <laughs> well, don't go changing, Harvey. You, you, what, no, you, no, no. what you're doing, you're doing right, and uh, we appreciate what you do. And um, thank you so much for talking today. It's been fascinating. Yeah. Um, I, le I learned 30 or 40 things about you, I'm sure, that I didn't know before. It was great to finally uh, have a long chat like this. You have a great weekend. Thanks for everything today. Uh, we'll talk soon, and we'll, we'll go deal with Exxon Main Street and various stuff in the future, and uh, let me know if you need anything. All right, bye. Bye-bye. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks. That's me. You can order the latest issue of Ugly Things magazine at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs, and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Issue number 61 will be coming out at the end of November. Please support us on Patreon, where all contributions are deeply appreciated. Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Please consider joining and help us to keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, and Ray Brandis. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 